Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We're going to tell a very simple story of how two people approach God prayed in two different ways and had two very different outcomes. Two people approaching God prayed in two ways with two different outcomes. So simple story, two people approach God, pray in two different ways, get two different outcomes. Okay, so we're going to think about this a little bit this morning and then we're going to pray and we're going to worship some more. So let's, we're just going to work our way through. So two men went up into the temple to pray. Okay, so they're doing something quite important here. Both of them are behaving a little bit like Moses and a little bit like Jesus. So uh, they go up the mountain to the temple. And the temple was on a, a, a hill. It was on a mount in the middle of Jerusalem. And as they understood it, the temple is where God lives. They, they literally called it God's house. They were going to his house to see him. That's where he lived. They were both going to seek God's which in Israel's history, if we were to read through uh, passages of the Old Testament, we see God often is on a mountain. So Moses in particular would go up the mountain to talk to God. It was the first thing they did when they got out of Egypt, as all of Israel waited at the bottom of the mountain uh, in some chaos and difficulty, and Moses went up the mountain to talk to the Lord. And then uh, one of the times that he came back down, the Israelites actually couldn't even look at him. His face was glowing. He'd almost physically changed by being in the presence of God. It had a profound and deep effect on him. But he went up the mountain to be with God. And Jesus would do the same, even though Jesus, as we understand him, is God. Okay, so you think, well, why would you need to do that? You can just kind of uh, be on your own and get time with God. But actually, he went up the mountain to be with his father. And he would do that fairly regularly. And John talks about how Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. He was go- they went up the mountain. So the, the Pharisee and this tax collector were behaving in exactly the same way. Okay, we are both going to God. We are going up the mountain. We're going to the temple, to God's house, to where he lives, to see him. And so Jesus is telling this parable, this story, to explain some things, okay, to also to reveal hearts as well. So when there is a parable of Jesus, it should provoke a reaction within the listener, within their heart, which is Jesus' way of revealing what's really going on with us. And he is trying to explain something. He's trying to explain what happens when you go up the mountain to be with God. Okay, so he, uh, he taught the disciples how to pray. He taught them uh, the Lord's Prayer, didn't he, in Matthew. Um, but he gave them a little instruction before he taught them the prayer. He says, look, when you pray, you go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, in a funny way, Jesus was teaching them how to go up the mountain, how to go into the presence of God, how to pray. Uh, And he was saying, look, you go and it's a very secret thing. It's a very hidden thing. But your father sees 
what is going on and will reward you. So when we pray, when we think perhaps uh, of any time that you have prayed this week, maybe uh, you've got a chance before you go to work or uh, maybe in the middle of the day, whenever it might be, and you think, I'm just going to have a little bit of time praying. In those moments, our Father in heaven, God sees us and he hears us. And not only what we present to him, the things that we say or perhaps what we look like, but he sees what's truly going on in our hearts. Perhaps the stuff that you have never, ever spoken out loud before. He sees our our motivations, the things that kind of make us get up in the morning, the things that, that drive us. He sees our hopes and our dreams, the things that we long to see happen in life, the things that perhaps we've been praying for for years or longing for for years. He also sees our prejudices, perhaps sees our arrogance and our pride. Perhaps he sees our deep frustration, our self-centeredness, our desperation, whatever it might be. Our Father, who we can approach, who we can go up the mountain to, who we can go see, he sees what we keep in secret. Now, you might think, God, that's a bit, God, that's a bit creepy. But actually, it's very, very reassuring. You can go to God and you don't have to explain yourself. He just kind of knows straight away. So these two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So let's, let's think about the Pharisee first. So the Pharisees, just to remind ourselves, were an important group at that time in Israel. They were a religious and a political group, really. They were very influential. They were very influential on the people who ran the temple. They were very influential on all of the different synagogues that were in Israel. So uh, you had the main temple, but the synagogues were the place where they would gather in communities to to worship and to uh, express their faith as uh, Jewish people. And they were very influential in all of those places, a very powerful group. And they wanted Israel as a nation to return to God. That's how they saw it, to to come back to worship God in the true way, the true way that Moses had written down, the true way that was in the scriptures. They wanted Israel to pursue holiness and righteousness. All of these are good things, right? We, We would agree with that. And they saw impurity. They saw Israel should be like this should be set apart as a a unique nation amongst all of the nations. That's how the the Bible describes Israel were a a people of priests. They were to intervene between God and the rest of humanity. That's how they saw Israel should be. That's what uh, they thought God had called them to. That's what they wanted Israel to go back to. And, And the Pharisees They loved the law, which was God's way of saying, this is how you behave that makes you different. They loved the law. They often quoted Moses. They wanted kind of strict adherence to the law. You must follow the law and be very, uh, um, really conscious of doing that. And they were so strict about this, they actually made up a whole bunch of additional rules. So you've got this one rule. Well, to to meet that one rule, we've added 10 more. You follow all of those. That should help you. They made additional rules all over the place. But they were pretty unique as well in that time. And they actually, they believed and were waiting for the resurrection of the dead, okay, which uh, Jesus believed in as well and we believed. 
And actually, the Pharisees, if we were to follow their story through, so we're reading from Luke today, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And actually, if you were to read in Acts, you would see a Pharisee become a Christian. It was a guy called Paul who became a follower of Jesus, became very influential in himself. And uh, some of his thought actually would have come from the teaching of the Pharisees. So you think, okay, well, what's the problem here? What, what, what's the issue? Well, the Pharisees, it seems, as we read our Gospels, were fairly anti-Jesus. And as Jesus saw them, he saw their arrogance, he saw their prides, he saw perhaps their, their nationalism and their racism, maybe as he understood it. He saw their hard-heartedness. He saw that they were a religious elite that didn't love people and didn't love God. He saw them as rule makers as well as rule keepers. And he saw them as people who wanted glory for themselves and not for God. Okay? All of this is very important. So as Jesus tells this parable, okay, he's telling them this kind of this story that he's made up to identify something uh, about these two people approaching God. It's because there are a bunch of Pharisees around listening to Jesus at this moment. And he wants them to understand what the issue is. He wants them to understand, look, what happens in secret in your heart is actually what God sees and hears. Okay, your faith is not performance. Now, your faith is is not something you impose on others and make extra rules for. Actually, what happens in the secret place of your heart is what God sees and hears. So we get to we can understand this about the Pharisee. And then it describes the Pharisee's prayer. Jesus describes it. It says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed in this way. So he was standing by himself. Yeah, he wasn't at this moment showing off. Jesus is saying, look, this is a real expression of what's going on deep inside of him at this moment. And when we often think, I'm going to go and pray and I'm going to go meet with God if I, I'm going to, you know, that's what I'm going to do. But we, we perhaps forget that actually God meets with us. We can think, oh, I just need to pray and I need to tell God some stuff and then I'm, then I'm going to clear off. Actually, in those moments, God meets with us exactly as we are. Nothing is hidden from him. And so he's standing by himself, but God is meeting with him and he prays this. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, I don't know about you. It's amazing how quickly he gets to himself. It's the second word. He says, God, I thank you. This is all about me. It's amazing how quick he gets to himself. And actually in this prayer, he doesn't even ask God for anything. It's just an announcement of his own awesomeness and his own brilliance. And it's really interesting language as well. He says, God, I thank you that I am. Okay, one of the names of God, one of the ways that God describes himself is as I am. So God I thank you that I am. And he's kind of saying, look, I am amazing. Because when God describes himself as I am, he's describing how sufficient he is, how perfect he is, how well-rounded he is, how complete and perfect he is. And so this is a massive clue of what this Pharisee thinks of himself. He says, I am. In his mind, God should be quite grateful to be hearing from him at the moment. In his mind, he's thinking, yeah, I've turned up for this quiet time, and God's, 
yeah, I understand that you're pleased with me that I'm here. How good am I that I've managed to do this? Uh, I'm almost an equal to you. He wouldn't say that because he knows it's blasphemy. But he's really given himself a, a really good... He is his own hype man, isn't he? He's doing very well at blowing his own trumpet. He is kind of worshipping himself in this moment. He is listing all of the reasons uh, why he is brilliant compared to other people. Here are a list of things that I don't do, God. Aren't you grateful that I don't do this stuff? Even reminding God of his own sacrifice. So perhaps when we come and pray and we worship Jesus, we thank him for his sacrifice, uh, thank him for all the stuff he's done for us. This guy's saying, remember all the things I've sacrificed. I didn't eat on two days of the week. That's how much I sacrificed. I give a tenth of all of the money and all of the possessions I get as well. That's my level of sacrifice. And actually in that, that's very subtle because he is going over and above what the, the biblical law asks of him. He's saying, yeah, I do better than the law that you've set for me. That's how good a human I am. Now, I've got to confess, I, I, I struggle when it comes to reading about the Pharisees, okay, when it comes to reading, because they pop up again and again, don't they, in the Gospels. If we were to read through all of the Gospels, this group keeps appearing, and they are very clearly the baddies, aren't they? There's no other way. They're very clearly uh, opposed to, to Jesus. Uh, they clearly miss the point of him. They resent him. Eventually, they hate him, and uh, they join the plotters in trying to get him killed. They join other religious leaders and political leaders in trying to get him bumped off. And we know this. We know as Jesus is kind of telling this story with all of the Pharisees watching him, uh, we know that actually they're not... They're planning bad things. They're planning bad things for Jesus. And it is very easy for us to read about them and think, well, I'm not like that. <laughs> I don't pray prayers like that. I, I'm actually a bit better than this Pharisee. That's what I am. But parables, these stories that Jesus kind of makes up uh, to illustrate things, are meant to reveal our hearts. They're meant to reveal the hearts of the Pharisees. But actually, as we read them a couple of thousand years later, they're meant to reveal our hearts as well. They're meant to kind of expose where we are at as well. Jesus is showing us who we really are. So if a bit like me, you find yourself thinking, I am not like the Pharisees. Even God, I thank you that I am not like the Pharisees. I don't look down on people like that. I'm a modern person, actually. I live in uh, the West. We're very laid back about people. We're not a judgmental people. I'm, I'm glad I don't judge people like the Pharisees judge people. And in an instant, I've become exactly like the Pharisee. I'm so pleased with myself that I'm not someone who looks down on others. I find myself looking down on the Pharisee. I find myself being pleased that I'm not a hypocrite, that I love people, I'm different to that person. But actually, there's something very judgmental that God reveals in us if we ponder this, uh, this Pharisee, what his prayer is at the moment. We can easily slip into judgment. Now, I, if you are a youth here this morning, there are a couple of them. 60% uh, of them are mine, but there are a youth here this morning. And actually, this is a good one for all of us, because actually we live in an incredibly judgmental point in history, an incredibly judgmental culture, actually. Uh, if you were to uh, go on social media for a bit, you would find that it is a pool of judgment. 
it invites you to judge. The very nature of social media is that you look at someone's post and you make a value judgment on whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing and whether you think they're a good person or a bad person or a fashionable person or an unfashionable person. It invites you to judge. It also invites you to show off, to ask for judgment as well. Uh, Now, I think there can be a lot of fun in social media. I think uh, some of it is basically harmless, but I think some of it actually can be a little bit deadly for our hearts as well. And social media is just a, a, a symptom of a problem in the human heart, isn't it? Is that we look to judge and we invite the judgment of others. To look at others and decide whether they are worthy or to present ourselves in a way that suggests we are worthy. All of this is going on with the Pharisee. So let's see what the tax collector prays. It says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that is very interesting, okay? Where does he stand? So the tax collector standing far off. Standing far off from who? Well, the Pharisee. Now, we, well, everything that we know about the Pharisee, the Pharisee has walked right in to the middle of the temple. Okay? He's walked into the place where only worthy Jewish men can go. Walked right in, probably as near as you can get to the Holy of Holies, which nobody is allowed to go into. He has gone into the center of, te- of the temple. In his mind, he's gone to the place nearest to God's. He was in the place of the elite, the most holy people, the most kind of pure people, the most righteous people could go into that place. And the tax collector, well, he was a long way outside, most likely right on the edge of the temple, the edge of the precincts, probably in a place called the Court of Nations, which is effectively where anybody could go. Anybody could be there. And he would find himself in that place. Now, he was a Jewish man as well, as Jesus tells this story. Uh, and the tax collectors were uh, Israelites who worked for uh, the, the kings of Israel and for the Romans as well, um, for the invading force. They would take the money and they would keep some for themselves. They were the most hated. Imagine at the moment in the invaded parts of Ukraine, okay, that there are some Ukrainians now who collect taxes off their people who used to be their friends, their families, former work colleagues, take that money, give it to the Russians, but keep some for themselves. Imagine how hated they would be. That was this guy. And the Pharisee is all about Israel being God's great nation, okay? It's set apart from all other nations, this perfect people who were God's representatives. And this tax collector was working for a different nation that was oppressing them, okay? It was all kinds of wrong. And so he places himself right on the edge of the temple because he knows, I can't go there. I just, I cannot go into that place. He knew he had no rights to go before God at all. None whatsoever. And again, this isn't about what other people think of him, because what, what happens? He says he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. So not only does he physically keep himself as far away from where God lives, God's house, as he possibly can, he can't even look God in the eye. Can't even lift his eyes to heaven. It says he beat his breast. It's an act of mourning. Actually, if you read where uh, Jesus uh, is crucified, some of his friends who are watching, they leave and it says they beat their breasts. They're in such anguish 
and pain and suffering and sadness as to what has gone on, what they have seen, they start hitting themselves. It's exactly what this guy does. Uh, in sadness, anguish at his state of his own heart. And this is all before he's even said anything. So what's going on here? I think this tax collector understands more about God than the religious experts because he knows Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has found it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So this tax collector knows that this God who he approaches, this God whose house he is right on the edge of, who is this God? Well, this God owns everything. He, he uh, owns the earth. The earth is his, the fullness thereof, literally everything that is in this creation and everything that lives in it, it's God's. He owns it. He made it. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the rivers. He made creation to work. It is his. He owns it completely. He's perfect and holy, the maker of all things. And so this guy, knowing all that he does, thinks, yeah, I don't want to get too close to that. I don't want to get too close to that. He's perfect. He also knows what else Psalm 24 says. The next verse says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord's? Who gets to walk up the mountain? Who gets to go to the temple? Who gets to go to God's house? Who gets to stand in his holy place? It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. This tax collector gets it. He completely understands. He knows that he cannot go into the presence of God. He knows he has sinned. More than that, he knows that that's kind of who he is. He is a sinner. His hands and his hearts are not pure. His hands have taken money from people and given it to others. He's stolen to make himself rich and others rich as well. He was greedy. He was deceitful. He was the extortioner that the Pharisee prayed. He was so grateful that he wasn't that. He does not have pure hands. His heart is not pure. So what, what is open to him to pray about? He can't turn up in front of God and congratulate himself like the Pharisee does. So what does he pray? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So let's jump back to the Pharisee for a moment, okay? In truth, this Pharisee was correct. Actually, he had obeyed the law. He was righteous, If he kind of went through the list of laws, actually, he'd probably have done pretty well. And the tax collector definitely was unrighteous. The Pharisee looks like a better follower of God. So if the Pharisee and the tax collector turn up here in Gorton one week and you're you're chatting to them because you're a friendly church afterwards at the tea and coffee and you start talking to the Pharisee, you'd think, man, he's got it together. There is a lot of good stuff that he's doing. And perhaps we would see him uh, very uh, publicly put his tithe in the box uh, and be like, yep, that's 10%. We'd all be like, wow, he's generous as well. Doesn't Doesn't he do good? And then the tax collector turned up and what would the modern equivalent here be? Perhaps he's a a well-known drug dealer in Gorton who uh, really makes people's life a misery and extorts money from them. Uh, We would be much more nervous of that guy, wouldn't we? We'd be thinking, oh, is he going to bring bad people here? This is is not a good situation. The Pharisee, we would, is right. This guy is unrighteous. And so as Jesus tells this parable, he then breaks all of the rules. 
He says, I tell you this, this man went down to his house. He went back home after his prayer for mercy. And he went down justified rather than the other, than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of Jesus is completely upside down, goes against human instincts, goes against what we think should happen. It goes against what uh, the religious elite of the time think should happen. And actually, if we allow this parable to provoke us and to reveal our heart, perhaps you think, oh gosh, yes, maybe that's what I think as well. But this sinful man, who was actually the most self-aware person in this whole story, knew exactly what he was doing wrong. He knew exactly what was impure about his hands and his heart. He knew exactly uh, what was going on with himself. And he confessed it to God and asked for mercy. And so what Jesus said earlier on in Luke is true. Some who are last will be first. This tax collector was the definition of last, very edge of the temple, the back of the crowd, not near the righteous people. If he was at New Day, he wouldn't be one of the kids at the front bouncing with joy. He'd be one of the ones right at the back who didn't quite know what to do and perhaps thought they were a bit too naughty. And some who are first will be last. The Pharisee right at the front the feeling how brilliant he is, actually he is to be the last. Jesus breaks all the rules. Actually, all of us are called up the mountain. We are called into God's presence. We are called to the temple, to God's house, where you get to meet with him and he meets with you. As Jesus describes, when you go into your room and you pray, and if we, like the tax collector, actually go and ask for mercy, We recognize in that moment who God is. Just by saying, God, have mercy on me, we recognize, okay, we are talking to perfect creator gods who made everything, sustains everything, owns everything, and is perfect. By just saying, God, have mercy on me, that says a huge amount about your relationship with gods. We recognize who he is. We also recognize who we are, created by this creator gods. We also recognize that we all walked away from gods. As humans, we walked into rebellion. We walked into self-righteousness, into our own arrogance and prides. We recognize that we are self-centered, that uh, perhaps we're greedy, whatever it might be. And in those moments, we ask for mercy. We repent. And then these last words that Jesus said, they're a relief to us. They are. They're a relief to us. Remember when I said, okay, God, uh, he sees your heart. When you're in the secret place, he sees everything and knows everything. Is that to smack us around and make us feel terrible? No. When we go and ask for mercy, what happens? Well, he's sent to his house justified. He's met with God. He's sent back into his life, back into his relationships, even back into his work, where perhaps after this cry for mercy, there was some repentance and realizing I need to change what I do. I need to change the way I live my life. They're a relief to us. In that moment, we are made rights. We're justified. He hadn't actually done anything yet. He hadn't changed the things going on in his life. He hadn't stopped exploiting the poor or extorting from people. He hadn't made any changes, but he was justified because Jesus said he was. He was vindicated. Jesus points at those of us 
who want mercy, who cry out for forgiveness. He says, these are my people. So just to finish, when we cry for mercy, actually, this is a beginning of a move of God. The last bit of Psalm, well, the next few verses of Psalm 24. Okay, remember he says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. Those are the people that can come to God's. And Jesus had made this tax collector one of those people, not because of suddenly all the changes he'd implemented and he'd done the Alpha course and done a really good program to sort his life out. It was because Jesus said, uh, this is who you are now. What happens then? Well, verse five says, he will receive blessing from the Lord's and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It's the generation of the tax collector, not the Pharisee. So when we cry for mercy, actually, it's the beginning of a move of God's. That move of God may be in our own hearts to start with, but when we cry out and say, God, I know who you are, I know who I am, please have mercy on me. That is the beginning of a move of God's. That's the beginning of a generation being changed, actually. It says, such is the generation of those who seek him. When we cry for mercy. We hope our kids and our youth cry out for mercy, don't they? Not because they look at their parents and think, they're wicked, I want to be like them. Because actually, they look at God. When we cry out for mercy. And it's a move of God in a city as well. The whole city cries out for mercy. That is a move for God. Instead of saying, we are brilliant, Manchester is the greatest. What a brilliant city we live in. I just say, God, we're broken. We need you. You are the perfect creator. We are an imperfect people. And so how a whole church can actually change and have deep impact on the, on the world around us. We might think we need to be brilliant at loving the poor. It's a good thing. Might think we need to be very generous and hospitable. Those are important and good things. But it has to come from a place of, Lord God, we cry out for mercy. You are perfect. We are imperfect. And in that moment, a generation is changed. 